Kia ora Robin. My name is Robin for some of the visitors. And it's my turn this morning to talk about one of our summer series, Stories That Lead Us to Jesus. And I've titled mine, Walking in God's Light, Especially When Times Are Tough. And Jess led us in that awesome song, Open Up My Eyes that I may see that all my ways are known to you. And what that is just such a lovely description of what I've got up there, that we walk in God's light, that he shows us the way, he shows us the path. Now, in the weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas, we focused on Jesus coming as the light of the world. And I've asked today... Dave, if he would mind coming up this morning and lighting, lighting out one of our Advent candles. I asked Tina if it was all right if we could relight one of our Advent candles to remind us while we're listening that Jesus is the light. No, not... No. <laughs> it's all right. To the next slide. So walking in God's light, the candle is to remind us of some verses in John 1. The word gave life to everything that was created. The word is Jesus. And his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness can never extinguish it. Our summer theme of stories that lead us to Jesus started last week with Tina and a message called dying on a day of parties. Now, if you didn't hear that message, it's up on Spotify. It's really worth listening to, and I'm going to listen again because I didn't get it all the first time through. It was an excellent message to start off our summer series. I've put light up deliberately because... We only have to step outside church or open our phones inside church or start worrying about a hundred other things to know that the world can be a dark place. And this past year, for many people, it has come to look even darker. In gloomy times, the temptation is to trust anyone who offers the merest glimmer of hope, who says, Join the party, follow me, and all will be well again. But unfortunately, the sad reality in life is that life doesn't always get better and better. But there is a light which will never fail. And there is only one who can lead me out of the dark labyrinth of the world into the light of life. Now, we're going to think together about what this actually means. I've got about three questions spread through this message so that you get to talk as well as me. So this first question, thank you, is think for a minute first. When did you first notice that God was real? How old were you when it suddenly penetrated that God was real? And share... I want you to turn to the person next to you and share something about the first time that you notice. Okay? Now, 
I already said that the theme through summer is stories that lead us to Jesus, and I want to share two stories today and weave through those stories the way that Jesus became and still is light of my world. I'm going to start with some parts of my own story, and I'm going to include some of the story of Corrie ten Boom. Some of you will have read her book written back in 1971. Some of you will not, but that's okay. Some of her story is told in this book, The Hiding Place, written by John and Elizabeth Sherrill. And Cheryl wrote about how they first met this woman, Corrie, and then spent time with... Sorry, can we have the next slide? <laughs> oh, we've still got it on the light. They spent time with her. And she says, straight away we realised that we were putting into practice things that we had learned from her about handling separation, about getting along with less, about security in the midst of insecurity, about forgiveness, about how God can use weakness, about dealing with difficult people, facing death, loving your enemies, and what to do when evil wins. The bulk of Corrie's story was written during World War II when she was, after she was in a prisoner of war camp. My experience was very similar I came across the book in about 1972, and I was about 19 then, and I decided to talk about her today because I still remember several things that she wrote about. They helped me as a very young Christian, and some of them are still helping me sort through things today. That list that I just read out that Elizabeth wrote doesn't all happen to us at once, thankfully. But across a lifetime, we will meet many of these situations. So Elizabeth continued that they talked to Corrie and said how practical her things were and how her memories seemed to throw a spotlight on the problems and the decisions that we faced today. But she said, that is what the past is for. Every experience God gives us, every person he puts in our lives, is the perfect preparation for a future that only he can see. And I think that's hugely important because some of us this year are going through experiences that we don't want and we really would rather not have them. But God knows what our future is. And Bruce and I would echo that comment. Every experience, every person. So how did I come to be reading her book? When Tina encouraged us last year to write and share our faith stories, I realised that I wanted to start mine in 1842, when my three greats-grandmother, Rebecca, arrived in Nelson on February 1st on a boat called the Fifeshire. Rebecca was 19, married to Thomas Berry, and heavily pregnant with my great-great-grandmother, Sarah, who was one of the first European babies born in Nelson. I can't imagine how much courage it took to make that journey to a completely unknown place on the other side of the world. And if you weren't scared when you arrived, 
That same ship was wrecked on the rocks in Nelson Harbour just four weeks later as it began the return journey to London. It only ever made one trip. Rebecca went on to have and to raise ten children, often without the support of her husband, as he seemed to travel a lot as a brushmaker and gold miner. Courage definitely runs through the woman of my family. One of Tina's questions was, how has New Zealand or history impacted you? And when I pondered this, I realised that both have given me the life that I have lived and still live. A stable childhood, all the encouragement in the world to be educated, and a great medical system have kept me alive so far and living with the immense privilege that all those things bring. We have always tried to share with others, but we are very aware of a system that nearly always made things easy for us, which means it didn't for others. One last comment about my great-great-great-grandmother Rebecca. Her father, back in England, was a writing master by profession, publishing a book called The Penman's Delight in 1828. I didn't actually know that they were writing and publishing books back then. And running meetings for both ladies and men to explain his new method of teaching writing. Where does my love for both teaching and reading come from? Just when, when my parents had me, the first two pieces of furniture in their home were a fridge and a bookcase. They had nothing else. The fridge was because I was in the hospital for three months and breast milk had to be expressed and chilled. The bookcase turned into rooms full of books that I grew up amongst. And as a small child, I learned to chant kindergarten, primary school, intermediate school, secondary school, university. There was never any thought that I would have a different pathway to that. Fortunately, I was both compliant and pretty keen on university study. I liked learning and still do. So... Where did God break into all this? This is the start of my story. But I want us to think about... Next slide, thanks, Josh. I want us to think about God in Psalm 139 on our theme of light, that we are saying, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God saw you in your mother's womb. He was with you in your childhood and upbringing. He saw everything that happened. What was one aspect of your upbringing that God used to open your eyes to him? Share that with the person next to you. Something that happened in your childhood and family that God used to open your eyes. Some of you might have to say nothing, and it started when I was 25 or 55. That's okay. So, where did God break into my life? My parents sent me to Sunday school, 
and occasionally I attended an early morning communion service with my dad. I loved all the Sunday school stories, but it just honestly never occurred to me that they were real. I read all kinds of books, including the Bible, and I didn't expect any of them to be real. I think I've mentioned before that when I was about eight or nine, I went to a week-long holiday program at our local Anglican church. A missionary lady spoke about her work in Africa, and I was enthralled. At last, I knew what I wanted to do when I grew up. I responded to a call to go forward and talk to her, and then puzzled over her comments all the way home. She said that if we're going to tell people who Jesus is in an overseas country, we have to tell people about him here in our own country. What a sensible lady. My problem was I had no idea who Jesus is. So I decided on the way home that I guess I would have to find that out first. My questions were treated with anything but enthusiasm at home, so I quietly tucked them away. But God didn't tuck me away. At about 12 or 13, I prayed my first real prayer after my little brother was hurt in an accident while I was babysitting. Please, God, if you really are there, could you send mum and dad back here? I looked up and saw my mum running across the park, the only time in my entire life I saw her run. And I just had time to go, oh, God, really? Before we bundled up my brother and took him to the hospital for stitches. So at 17 and a half, I left home in Blenheim to go to university in Christchurch with great excitement and some thoughts in the back of my head. God was real, but that probably wasn't going to have much impact on my wonderful new growing up university life. I was wrong. The God who had been attracting my attention at those points all the way through in my life wasn't stopping now. Next slide, please. An older girl in the hostel I lived in for my first year invited me and a friend to church and took us almost every Sunday. For the rest of the week, I studied somewhat and tried my best to turn into a successful social butterfly, failing dismally, but getting to a point by the May holidays where I turned 18 that I felt as if I had ruined my whole life. I went to the small church down the road from where I'd grown up, and somewhere during that service I said very quietly, God, if you want what is left of me, you can have it. And he did. He said yes, instantly, and suddenly I was washed clean from head to foot, and with absolutely no doubt that God was real, and I belonged to him now. I had no idea what that meant, despite my Sunday school and a few months of regular church. I didn't tell anybody what I had said to God, because why would I? But a few months later, I asked that older church-going friend a question and was quite amazed when she got all excited. 
about my questions and about what I'd said to God. I got involved in Christian Union at her suggestion and also learned to look in books for how to do things like praying and living this life with Jesus because I always learned from books. This was who I was and am for generations. Somebody did suggest more than a year after I gave my life to God that I could read the Bible, starting with John. And wow, what a book. I just loved it. So now I'm giving you a new commandment, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. We're going to talk more on this in February. But these became and still are the verses that I tried to live life by. Love one another. And just a sideline, if you lead someone to the Lord, don't wait a year to introduce them to the Bible. And that's where we come to Corrie Ten Boom's story. Her story was told in the book called The Hiding Place. And honestly, her whole family in Holland was just a picture of loving one another and hundreds of other people and sharing God's light in a very dark world. And that was even before they were overrun by Germany, partway through World War II. We can have the next one, Josh. Thanks. Corrie lived in Holland for about the first 50 years of her life, with her family in an old house of several stories with tiny, misshapen rooms, which became very useful when they wanted to hide people which they called the Beiji. Her father was a clockmaker who was excellent at repairing clocks but bad at sending out bills. So the family survived on very little money but loads of love. Corrie was one of four children and when they were all grown, her father said the house was too lonely without children so they raised another dozen foster children. It was the type of home where the kettle was always on the boil and there was always a pot of soup for anyone who stopped in the alley, cold and hungry. In the 1930s and 40s, there were a lot of cold, hungry people in Holland and in much of the rest of the world. Their day began and ended with Bible reading and prayer, and they prayed a lot. Corrie's dad even prayed over the clocks or watches he couldn't repair, believing that if God could run the whole universe he could see why a clock wasn't working as well. One of the first stories that I remember from the book came from when Corrie was still a small girl. Every Monday, her father travelled to Amsterdam on the train to get the correct time from the Naval Observatory. So he would make it an hour trip each way to make sure that the watch he took with the clock he took with him was set to the exact second and then he would take it back to his town so everybody could have the right times. Corrie often travelled with him and loved to use the train trip home to talk to her father. But this day she asked him, Dad, what is sex sin? From something she had overheard at school. This was before the end of the 19th century and definitely not a topic for conversation. Her father looked at her, then got up and put his travelling case full of watches and spare parts on the floor saying, will you carry this off the train for me, please, Corrie? 
She said yes, but when she tried, she couldn't move it. It was way too heavy. He took the case and said, it's a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a heavy load. It's the same way with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. But when you are older and stronger, some knowledge is too heavy for adults too. And our Heavenly Father knows this as well. I have gone back to that suitcase story many times in my life when I couldn't understand what or why God was doing in our lives. But I knew that he was carrying it for me for now. The Ten Boom family had always lived with an open door to all sorts of people, including those dozen extra children and all their families. When war came to Holland and the Jews were being hunted down, they still kept that door open, knowing that it was a terrible risk. The first night of bombing in Holland, Corrie sat up most of the night with her older sister Betsy, praying for their country, for the dead and injured, and for their queen. And then, incredibly, Betsy began to pray for the Germans. Up there in those plains, caught in the fist of the giant evil loose in Germany. Corrie looked at her sister and whispered, Oh Lord, listen to Betsy, not me, because I cannot pray for them at all. It's very easy to look at another person and wish that we were more like them, even in our Christian walk. But God made each one of us in our variety, and that's hugely important. Betsy found over the next few years that she could pray and love for the enemies. Corrie couldn't, and it was maybe a decade or more later that God showed her in quite a dramatic way how to forgive by physically reaching out with his love. At this point, though, on the first night of the war, Corrie had a dream where she and her father and Betsy and many of their extended family and some of their friends were being taken away in a huge horse-drawn wagon. They couldn't move out of the wagon, but it was taking them where they didn't want to go. Neither she nor Betsy understood the dream, but Betsy responded with, if God has shown us bad times ahead, it's enough for me that he knows about them. That's why he sometimes shows us things, you know, to tell us that this too is in his hands. That's another one of those lines that I keep. This too is in his hands. God does sometimes show us what's going to happen ahead. It's always for a reason. When we went to Papua New Guinea, he made that so abundantly clear that I said to Bruce, I'm almost scared about what it's going to be like when we get there because he's made it so clear that we are to go. But actually, it was an amazing two years. The tough time started when we came home again. I needed to know then that it had been right to go. Over the next few years, the lives of literally hundreds of Jews were saved by the Ten Boom family and many others. Corrie coordinated much of the work. 
they usually had as many as 10 or a dozen people staying in their home hiding. And they practiced hiding in a hiding place for when raids came. <clears throat> Hence the name of the book. But in early 1944, the house was raided. Dozens were arrested and Corrie's dream came true. They were taken away <clears throat> to the first of several prisons, finally ending up in a prison camp in Germany. Corrie's now very elderly father only lived 10 days in prison. But his answer to the question <clears throat> of a Gestapo chief explained their attitudes to people. The chief said to him, Old man, if I send you home, give me your word that you won't cause any more trouble. And the old man stood very straight and very tall and looked at the chief and said, If I go home today, tomorrow I will open my door again to any man in need who knocks. The stories of Corrie and Betsy in the various prisons and camps are amazing reading. I couldn't find a copy of the book to bring along, but I did find it on Libby, on the Bible, the library app, if you want to read it. And some people have still got their copies. I've lost mine. Betsy died a few weeks before Corrie was released, but not before describing to Corrie in intimate detail all the work they should do after the war ended and the homes that should be set up to minister to both ex-prisoners and their captors as well. If you need lessons in how to be thankful in every situation, these stories are a wonderful place to start. But I want to share just two more things that I learned from Corrie that have stayed with me since the 1970s. Corrie spent months in an isolation cell and she learned never to waste activities by doing two things at a time. If you have ants to watch, just watch and enjoy. That was a very useful lesson if you ever have to spend the best part of two years in bed. When, after Corrie was released, she found so much work to do, and across the next 40 years, she established places of healing and travelled widely, sharing Betsy's story, before dying in 1983 at the age of 91. But this amazing, articulate woman spent the last five years of her life in bed, silent, crippled by a stroke. Five years. Many people asked, how could this be God's will? But Corrie never stopped witnessing to his love. Elizabeth Sherrill, who wrote the book, wrote in the Guideposts magazine, you would visit to cheer her up, but you would be the one who would leave that silent bedroom, spirit mysteriously and gloriously renewed. I find that a real example and a challenge and a bit of a worry for what's ahead of some of us as we get older. But it's, we have a couple of Corries in our own congregation at present too that you visit them and come away gloriously renewed. Now, as we head out today into a completely unknown 2024, 
What can we take with us? A New Year's Eve prayer that I read that some of you will be familiar with starts, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. Bruce and I faced one year when we'd been made redundant from overseas. And we, by the beginning of the year, we had come back to New Zealand to live in our house that was just a rental. We didn't have a job. We didn't know where we were going. We didn't know what was going to happen. And we were praying and praying that God would show us. And he just wasn't. Finally, one day, I had some thoughts that connected with us. And I said to Bruce, we want God to tell us what is going to happen and then we'll organise ourselves to make sure it does. He's telling us to hold on. He knows what's going to happen. He's got it in his hands. We didn't like it much, but we learned. If we are going to live dangerously this year or love recklessly, we will need to hold tightly to what God tells us in his word whether it's a verse you remember from long ago or some new ones that you are reading today. Corrie risked her life countless times to hold on to some part of the Bible so she could share it with others. People managed to get little scraps of the Bible or New Testaments or things into them in prison sometimes. And God seemed to cover them up. They wore them. They wore it on a loop around their neck under their clothes, but they only had one layer of clothes and they were so thin, it must have been showing. But so many times, nobody saw it. Today I want us to look, thanks Josh, at Isaiah 43:18. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it or see it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Last week, Tina shared the story of Father Damien with us, who showed reckless love. He dared to give his whole life away so a group of people with leprosy could know the love and light of Jesus. What's God daring us to do this year? Is he telling us in some area of our own lives or of our whole church life, that there is a new thing waiting us. We need eyes to see, a heart to believe, and hands to receive the new thing he is doing. And it's worth noting where he promises to work. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. He will work in the wilderness, the desert, the dry, difficult and forgotten places of my life perhaps in the prison spaces as well. Just think again for a few minutes. What new thing will you look out for or what part of your wilderness needs new ways this year? You might have partially answered this question when Tina asked us to share earlier. Maybe you've got something to add to it now. Talk about this together and then pray for each other. What new things, or what part of your wilderness needs new ways this year. Okay.
Let's close in prayer together before, before the worship team come up. Um, Josh, can we have the last slide, please? Thank you. Let's just pray this together. I've, I found it and loved it. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us in 2023. Lead us, Lord, to trust you more in 2024. Thank you, Jesus, for your kindness to us in 2023. Help us, Lord, to love you more in 2024. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your power in us in 2023. Stretch us, Lord, to believe for more in 2024.